Yeah, it's time for Rational Radio, and uh, let's get straight into it. A warm welcome to Adrian Lacay, who's our first guest today. Adrian, uh, you might remember, is the man who was, uh, well, he was the spokesperson for SARS. Adrian, that's when we met uh, many years ago, well over a decade. Uh, good afternoon, Alex. Yes, that's right. Uh, it was in the middle of 2000s, I think. When we were both a bit younger <laughs> and had a bit more hair, I would imagine. <laughs> Don't go there. But uh, at the time, uh, Pravin Gordon was the commissioner at SARS. He was busy doing his um, his decade of of rejuvenation of the tax uh, service, which the Nugent Commission and many others have been saying is so important to a developing economy. You need to get the tax collection right. Yes, that's correct, um, Alex. That, uh, that was really... The, sort of in the middle of the formative years of what became a very formidable revenue and customs administration around 2010 and onwards. Um, and uh, I think if we look at the pronouncements yesterday by Minister Tito Mboweni in Parliament, um, Minister of Finance currently, uh, he is again projecting a significant revenue shortfall for the current fiscal year. Um, this comes on the back of at least three successive fiscal years until now where we had under collection in revenue. And what Minister Mboweni explained yesterday was were the pressures that ESCOM and other SOEs are putting on the fiscus uh, needing government support or regular bailouts, it adversely affects our fiscal situation to the extent that our debt is still likely to grow over the next three years, the MTEF cycle. And if revenue collection uh, is not repaired or not restored to the levels that it was, uh, we are going to have a growing problem for our economy, but also for our fiscus. So we all hope that SARS under new commissioner and hopefully new management team soon would be able to regain some of its capability to actually meet revenue targets that the Minister of Finance set for them. Adrian, I think you really have put it in a nutshell now. Because SARS is in a mess and is under-collecting, we as taxpayers have to pay more. That's really the bottom line, isn't it? But how did it go from being one of the most admired collection agencies in the world? Almost every year you used to beat the targets that were set to one where we now seem to be getting used to undershoots. Um, unfortunately, yes. Uh, I summarize it in my head as this is the legacy of Tom Uyane, because if you carefully go and study the report by Judge Nugent of December last year, after he was appointed by the president to do the tax inquiry into SARS and tax administration, he basically concludes that uh, systematically the revenue institution was uh, dismantled decimated, in fact, is I think is the word that the report uses, that uh, this was a premeditated assault by Moyane. He planned long before being appointed to the position of SARS commissioner. He had meetings with Bain and company, the consultancy. So he prepared him for the role. And the role was basically, to put it in very uh, uh, concise terms, to capture SARS. Um, he did so in effectively dismantling the management capacity. After six weeks, he started with his actions, suspending the EXCO, uh, suspending key officials, including the deputy commissioner at the time, Mr. Ivan Pillay, the COO, the chief operating officer, Mr. Barry Hoare, a well-respected 
um, uh, 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 businessmen in financial circles left by December 2014. So within the first three to four months after Moyani's appointment, he created absolute havoc in the institution that led to institutional instability. Um, and of course, it was always going to have an effect on the institution being able to retain the top skills and also in its longer-term ability to meet revenue targets and to maintain the level of tax compliance that we had in the country at the time. Because I think there's any number of research papers from around the world that shows there is a direct correlation between um, tax behavior from citizens, tax compliance, and the belief that they have in the institution or in the government of the day. And if a leader like Moyane comes in as commissioner and starts to create havoc and instability, it does have an effect on compliance. And evidence to that effect was also presented to Judge Nugent and his inquiry that shows once you create or allow these scandals to happen or to beset an institution, it affects tax morality in the long term. And unfortunately for us, when Minister Nene was returned to the position of Minister of Finance and he tabled his budget, I think it was 2017 or uh, 2018, we had a 1% increase in the rate of value-added tax, VAT. Mm. And as you know, VAT is a tax that affects all of us, working, unemployed, any consumer across the economy. We now pay a percentage more in VAT because Treasury realized the fiscal constraints due to lower revenue, uh, collection and they have to increase the collection base. And that's a burden all of us carry to this day. You know, I've given you complete free reign here, Adrian, because everything that you've said has come out in court. It's now no longer speculation. But at the time that you wrote your book with Johan van Lochrenberg uh, about the the so-called rogue unit. Not everybody believed it. It was. It almost seemed like science fiction at that time. Have you felt, from the people you engage with, that they're now looking at your eyes uh, in your eyes? They're not glazing anymore, but they're saying, "My goodness, why didn't we actually catch on?" Well, Alec, <laughs> uh, I think uh, I really hope some people go back and read the book. Um, but I think South Africa was a different place in 2015. Um, I think the Zuma administration was uh, almost reaching a crescendo in its power that it exercised over state institutions. There was lots of confusion um, about what is going on at SARS in particular. Is there a rogue unit? Did Pravin Gordon uh, break the law? Um, Moyani and the new SARS administration at the time, they pushed a particular line publicly, um, leading to the public confusion. So I think it, we were in a different place in 2015. You may also recall, but when I resigned from SARS in March 2015, I followed that up by a letter to Parliament, uh, to two committees, the Finance Committee and the Committee on Standing Committee on Intelligence. And I said to them, look, I've resigned from SARS because it's clear to me that wrong things are happening. It will have a long-term effect on the institution. You need to look into this urgently. There are investigations being carried out. There are companies like KPMG being appointed to do forensic investigations by Moyane. I think he is up to doing wrong things. And if you don't want to speak to me, all of these people whom I worked with for more than a decade have also left SARS. 
please call them. You have an oversight duty over the institution and try and see if uh, there is a growing problem. The response, of course, was that I got sued by Moyane uh, for defamation. There was no intervention politically from or from the legislature and those committees in terms of their oversight functions um, over the institution. And not even the MPs on that committee probably fully understood what was happening at SARS and what was happening in the country. And I think it on the real effects of state capture and the attempts to take over institutions like SARS became much more prominent and clearer from 2016 onwards when the Hawks and Sean Abrams really moved against Pravin Gordon when Des van Rooyen in December 2015 had to be removed by Zuma after four days as finance minister, when the business sector in particular started to stand up and say, what you're doing to our country and our economy is wrong. I think some of the pieces of the puzzle started to fit into place from early 2016 onwards. And of course, since the Gupta leaks, emails and the media exposés, and the evidence that we've heard in successive commissions, including the Zondo Commission, puts us now in a place where we can look back and say, but some of our, some of these people were not entirely wrong mm. uh, in what they advanced at the time. So if people could understand that context, I think we would make progress. Um, and also just to underscore that, you know, the fact that we have a new president now doesn't mean that we should take our eyes off the ball. I think civil society and the general public should still remain very vigilant about what is going down in the country and how officers like that of the public protector now, what role they now play to sort of interrupt, interfere, try, try to disrupt the renewal process that the president is trying to initiate and install, at least on state institutions, because we are still in a very uh, fluid place. And um, I think it manifests itself in any number of court cases or bef before the Zondo Commission of Inquiry, for example. You know, lots of people, Adrian, uh, who, who are close to it, people like you and I who read the judgments, who are on the court cases, get the, get the feeling that uh, all the, the, this wreckage of the past is now being addressed. But when you talk to the ordinary citizen, there's a lot of confusion. Uh, there's a lot of fear still. There's a lot of uh, a, a belief that, well, maybe Pravin Gordon was not all right. Maybe the <coughs> allegations against him. Um, how how do you, how does one help, or how does how does one address this kind of criticism? Because we're still seeing South Africans leaving the country, believing there is no future here. What do you do when when people address you with these issues? No, thanks for that question. It's a very, very important one. Um, I think part of the public confusion is that uh, comes from the fact that there is a persistent, well-resourced, well-funded uh, campaign from various quarters to spread disinformation. I don't follow Twitter, for example, but I'm advised and informed of what's going on from time to time, where there's a very loud and vociferous campaign question the integrity of President Cyril Ramaphosa, specifically target Travin Gordon, um, you know, ex exalt the public protected to a level uh, of competence and admiration for our work. You have almost a nexus which intersects also with the EFF and they are very vocal and active on social media. So there's a persistent campaign to put what we can call alternative narratives out there um, and it is to confuse the public. 
Um, I think our only recourse until now has been when matters come before a court, when arguments are presented like yesterday before a high court judge, or when a judgment is delivered like by the Constitutional Court on Monday this week. The courts concern themselves with facts. If you as a citizen really want to understand the details of any particular issue, you need to make the effort to follow things from a basis of fact or to establish fact from reading judgments. I mean, I'm sitting here with the constitutional court judgment of the public protector of Monday. It is absolutely scathing about her conduct. Yeah, and, we, and we're going to be talking to Paul Hoffman about that a little later from accountability. Sorry, Adrian, you, you seem to get lost there, but Thanks for, for the, the contribution today. Adrian Lacay, the former spokesperson at SARS, who's now very involved in the uh, exposing of state capture. He also wrote an excellent book with Johann van Lochrenberg. Uh, remember, there were 200 people from SARS and the managers from SARS who were taken out of the system by, uh, well, for want of a better word, the Zuptoids. But we are going to be talking more about that public protector judgment uh, with Paul Hoffman from Accountability Now. That's the, at the end of the show today. Uh, he has actually approached um, the organization that deals with these things to get her struck off as an advocate. More of that coming up. Well, on this show today, there's going to be quite a lot of attention given to whistleblowers. Uh, we're going to be talking a little later to Cynthia Stimple. You might remember that she was the whistleblower at South African Airways. But a whistleblower that we discussed uh, to or spoke with two weeks ago, uh, who's really come in for a rough ride, is Jean Lorena. Jean, uh, you've, you, you were taken to court by uh, the company that you blew the whistle on, your former employer, Sam Darby. The court uh, judgment is scathing of you. Uh, reading through it again, I thought of uh, the very famous saying of Mark Twain's uh, that uh, the, the, uh, the, the person who has himself uh, or uses his own counsel in a court of law is a fool. And I thought, my goodness, why did you go into that court case against this extremely well-resourced uh, organization, your former employers, representing yourself? I'm sure there must be a, a reason to it because um, you'd really... <laughs> Up against ENS, uh, it's 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 tough stuff. We're going to talk in a moment about the Unilever case, but let's just get that out of the way. Hi, Alec. Um, yeah, it was it was, it was actually a, a tough call, and it sort of happened by default. Um, I appeared obviously uh, in the Cape High Court on um, on the first day of the trial uh, with the proposition of wanting to postpone postpone the case. And um, I literally walked in there uh, by, by myself uh, with three pieces of paper and um, obviously um, with the intent of requesting Judge uh, Bozalak to, to postpone the case in order just um, to give my legal team some time just to prepare um, appropriately for, for the case. Okay, and so what happened at the end of the day was you ended, uh, you ended up representing yourself? Yes, I did. Um, the judge basically um, said that um, I looked like uh, somebody that was quite able to defend himself and uh, that he didn't want to postpone the case and that he wanted to um, start the case immediately. So uh, obviously taken by a bit of surprise, uh, you can just imagine, you know, the daunting feeling of 
standing standing up in a in a high court um, type environment and being told that um, that the case is going to proceed. Yeah. Um, immediately. And, yeah. And, so and obviously, uh, <laughs> what happens now? I mean, the judgment was against you. Nearly fifty million rand uh, that you got to pay Sam Darby as a consequence of that. Can you appeal or? or it's a lot of money to pay, even if I don't know how rich you are, but certainly I would blanch at those kind of numbers. Yeah, the, you know, so the reported number was let's call it fifty-five um, million rand, uh, which was basically broken up into three sections. Uh, Fifteen million was um, legal fees. Um, Ten million was for the macro rule, which which I'll explain a little bit um, about, and the other thirty million rand was uh, based off. Uh, lack of information, and um, what I mean by lack of information was there was obviously bank accounts where funds had left their account. Now, obviously, keeping in mind, fast track marketing um, was the legal entity for a couple of businesses. Um, so, Evergreen Properties, Fast Track Car. Sean, I tell you what, let's. I, I don't really want to get into the details of sure. it because most people haven't got the judgment in front of them. Yes. But, but do you end up having to pay this money? In, you'll be paying for the rest of your life, presumably. Uh, <laughs> you know, the 55 million um, excluded interest at uh, approximately 15% per annum. So I think the the the, the bill, and that's that's um, goes back to 2012. Um, so it's most probably grown to about a 94 million rand um, account, if we can put it that way. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure they will be seeking seeking payment for that. Hmm. Okay, so let's put that one side. In the last, since we last spoke, uh, you have been involved in the reason why you've got all of this issue on on your uh, neck is you reported Sam Darby and Unilever uh, to various authorities, including the Competition Commission. The Competition Commission has now taken it to the Competition Tribunal. And you've been involved in the hearing against Unilever at the tribunal. Just for, for background, Sam Darby have paid more than 30 million rand, plus uh, established a plant as well in, in its plea. Sorry, we, we're guilty. Uh, Unilever said they weren't guilty and we're fighting the case. So just take us through what's happened in the past week and a half in the tribunal. Yes, yeah, sure. So obviously proceedings kicked off on, on the 12th of July and... Um, Mr. Jonathan Pennyfather, who was the country manager for Sam Darby at the time, so he was country manager from 2004 through to 2012, um, took the stand, obviously, um, as one of the witnesses for the Competition Commission. And he was on the stand for three days, uh, which is quite a lengthy time, um, obviously going through cross-questioning uh, by the tribunal, by Unilever's um, legal team, as well as the Competition Commission. Um, I then took the stand thereafter, and I was on the stand for a further two days. So also, once again, obviously for the Competition Commission, uh, going through cross-questioning, etc., um, which that ended up last week, Thursday, the 18th. Unilever um, subsequently obviously put, um, apparently they wanted to put through about four or five witnesses from their side, um, one of which took the stand on Friday. And... Um, the balance of the witnesses, in fact, what happened on Friday, they requested that the proceedings be postponed until August because some of the witnesses were not able to attend this week. The tribunal 
then uh, um, agreed to that. Um, besides, there's one of their witnesses that will appear before the tribunal tomorrow. So besides the appearance tomorrow, um, it seems like the total trial and proceedings are going to only continue sometime in August. I'm not too sure of which, um, which date in August, but um, they would further hear another two or three testimonies from Unilever um, witnesses. Well, we will be keeping in touch with you, Jean Lorena, uh, the whistleblower who's paid a heavy price for going to the authorities on a, a market uh, collusion case between his former employer, Sam Darby, and Unilever. Sam Darby is admitted its guilt and has paid a hefty fine. Unilever is still fighting it, and as you heard from Jean, he was uh, he was at the competition tribunal, and uh, we will be going into that as well as it continues uh, in August. Well, we will be talking to a super entrepreneur in the next interview. Well, this song is uh, for our next guest, Farsi Malherbo. Not exactly for the guest that we've just heard. Uh, uh, certainly, Jean Lorena has got got his hands full at the moment. But Farsi, you, we're talking to you from Geneva. But uh, as uh, everyone will hear in just a moment, you are very South African, and uh, your story is a is is an inspiring one. A company called Lobster Inc., which you guys started, you and uh, three partners, Dave Dendolk. Uh, Paul Rowett and Tim Nell in 2006 with 22,000 rand. Well, it's it's kind of a story that dreams are made of, and you've sold it out for gazillions. Uh, just just <laughs> let's just go through uh, the beginning and and how you started it all, and 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 where Lobster Link, Lobster Inc came from. Thank you, Alex, and good day to you, listeners. Um, so the the positioning of lobster, essentially, I worked as a as a chef in uh, South Carolina in Charleston in the U.S. And uh, while I was working there, the slogan was, um, "The world is your lobster, rather than the world is your oyster." So I came back to South Africa thinking that, and met up with Dale Dindalk, Um and essentially, we decided to go into a training business called Let's Sell Lobster, using the word lobster in order to be able to, as a, as a catchphrase. Uh, so Let's Sell Lobster was born as a face-to-face training company, and our role was essentially to go into the most extraordinary destinations around Africa and train up team members that had come from the local villages that hadn't necessarily ever been exposed to education before or, or solid education and been exposed to discerning travelers and luxury goods. And our role was to teach people that had never slept in a bed before how to make a bed, uh, someone that had never cooked on gas before, how to now cook with gas and essentially all the hospitality and care around that for the discerning travelers bearing in mind that in Africa you've got three out of the ten most expensive destinations in the world um, and you're taking people from the local community and training them up and then essentially you've got the most discerning travelers that are expecting, whether it's ritz Carlton type hospitality and service from New York or Peninsula Hong Kong, that you're delivering that in a remote location. So that was our role and it developed from there from being face-to-face through to videos that we used to put on 27-inch Apple Mac screens and ship them, ship them all over Africa. And then because we're South African and we've got a heritage of being slightly insecure of what we are and, and what our products are, um, we didn't realize that this was a solution that was needed globally, but we got um, a number of the large global groups cottoned on to our video-based training solution that was remote, that was mobile first, 
and uh, they had pulled us through to the UAE. We did some pilot projects in the UAE, and from the UAE, we were uh, taken into the US, and essentially, that's that's what sparked it and um, created a frenzy around Lobster Inc. For, for quite some time. So it exploded into the global community, but it's that first step that often gets, uh, that, that entrepreneurs often trip up on. How did you actually yeah. get in first? I understand the idea, and it's a great idea, and I'm sure there are many other people who've had, who've had similar ideas in their minds but not managed to, to hook a fish, if you like. Who was the first fish that you guys got? So I think we were incredibly lucky in the sense that we, we had a company called Singita, which is a South African company. We can all be tremendously proud of a company like Singita because they're delivering the very greatest hospitality um, on earth. There is no hospitality company around the globe that delivers as, as a luxurious experience as Singita. And they took a chance on us. And they said, look, we, we would love you to assist us with our, our hospitality and delivery in, in our lodges. Uh, we also had wilderness safaris that gave us a massive break. They had 70-odd camps, and they said, well, let's, let's take on the solution. And uh, we worked with wilderness safaris, and all of a sudden, we, we knew there was something there because these two clients were ripping it out of our hands in order to be able to use it within their remote locations. The interesting thing about being able to get product market fit rapidly is just spend a huge amount of time with clients. If you want to make great things or things that people want, then make sure that you are asking the right questions and you're listening to those answers. But importantly, you don't necessarily have to listen to the answer that, that someone is giving you in order to shape your product, as in telling them telling you what the product should be. As Henry Ford said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. The importance is to be at the client coalface where their needs and analysis is, find what the value is, and deliver a product that ensures that the value is being created, and that value is sustainable for you and for your business, and then keep on rolling with the innovation that comes off the back there. So we were just, Alec, we were incredibly lucky, and we're incredibly grateful to Singita and Wilderness Safaris. And then we had some big hotel groups, um, that's U.S. hotel groups that that gave us a lucky break in the UAE and the East. The importance about going into the U.S. is you don't, or for us, we didn't go into the U.S. first. We went outside of the U.S. So, in other words, to the U.S. companies, US companies like Hilton and Marriott and IHG, we went into their regional offices in the UAE and Southeast Asia. Those regional offices took their new shiny toy that had proved value, and they took it into the head offices in the U.S., bearing in mind that the U.S. headquarters are inundated with solutions that they just can't necessarily hear and listen to every single solution. So when we take a data driven value solution back or into the corporate head offices, all of a sudden they, they, they sit up and, and they take notice. And, and that was sort of our strategy there. So it was a number of lucky breaks. That being said, Alec, the way we did started to understand luxury hospitality globally because we were four relatively straightforward um, South African gents with very little budget. Um, and what we would do is we would go to major cities around the world and we would sit in the in the lobbies or in in the, the coffee shops of those luxury hotels and we would just drink hundreds upon hundreds of cappuccinos and we would watch the ebb and flow of how the hospitality was delivered. We'd speak to concierge, ask them questions and all of a sudden we found alignment and then we maneuvered the product rapidly in order to be able to gain that alignment. Yeah, no substitute then for opening your eyes and your ears and just watching and doing your research. 
No, and not also being insecure. Uh, South Africans are so insecure. And what we must understand is that the minds that come out of South Africa are incredible. The resourcefulness that the South Africans have is, is far beyond anything that, that we see in many other countries that we work. Look, the work ethic of the American is absolutely extraordinary. And it, it takes a lot of beating to, 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 um, to work as hard as the Americans will. That being said, the resourcefulness of the South Africans, because of our heritage, is absolutely paramount to our success. success. And, and if we can eliminate the insecurities that we have, that everything from overseas is better, and we actually realize that the things that we think and create and align with, South Africa is an extraordinary testing ground. And if you can test something and it works and you find product market fit in, in South Africa, I guarantee you, you will be able to tweak that slightly, but it will work globally. And, and so... South Africa is a great testing ground and make sure that it makes it, that it makes sense locally and works locally and then start scaling. Hmm. Uh, Farsi, then you decided to sell to Ecolab recently and uh, cash in your chips as it were. What shaped that decision? So, um, we did decide to sell to Ecolab um, because, well, it, it was a long, t- a long time coming. Uh, I essentially pursued them for three and a half years. They, they wouldn't listen. Um, they couldn't hear me because they had many other projects on. It's a $50 billion organization. Uh, and there was this plump ginger trying to, to sell them a company. But essentially, what, what it is, Ecolab is the biggest B2B organization globally. So Marriott is a client of Lobster, but it's also a client of Ecolab. Marriott is one out of one million odd clients of Ecolab. McDonald's is two out of one million. Starbucks is three out of one, uh, out of one million. So essentially Lobster has always been a deskless worker platform. In other words, we are focused on teaching the 2.7 billion people out of 3.2 three billion people that do not have a desk. Ecolab's biggest clients, essentially, yes, they, they deal with the corporate level, but Ecolab's biggest client is the man on the ground, the lady at the counter that is essentially using their chemicals, dispensing with their products and the likes, and they need to teach those people how to do that as well. So in other words, the, la- the, the alignment was very, very critical, and that came to fruition where all of a sudden they did a big, uh, a big assessment with all their clients and needs analysis, and it came back that training was an enormous need of their clients, and we were able to, we were able to be in the right space at the right time. They bought a great company, Lobster, um, for a for a good price. But uh, more importantly, with their access to all those clients, they are going to create a global deskless solution that that focuses on those 2.7 billion people at scale, and they're going to do that rapidly. So it's almost like a merger between a very formal uh, business and an informal business, that uh, one that's that's remote, that uh, can reach people through cell phones and, and new technology. Absolutely. You know, the interesting thing, Alec, about about what we did is uh, lobster was always mobile first because in Africa uh, there were two things that we that that Africa taught us. It was teach to the why or teach to the understanding and make it relevant. And the secondly was mobile first because Africa is the world leader in mobile. So, or we were a while ago, world leader in mobile uh, because mobile technologies was adopted quickly because people don't have laptops and desk computers, etc. But the importance here is that from an eco perspective, yes, while they are a very formal institution um, globally, they spend over a billion dollars on innovation every single year. So while it is very formalized, they are trying to align and disrupt continuously with a huge billion dollar fund. So it was a, it was a natural acquisition for them. That being said, they're going to take Lobster to a whole new level. 
Well, great talking with uh, Fazi Malherba, talking to us there from Geneva, where the business moved to. As you heard, uh, they started the company in 2006 and, uh, well, done a transaction that he's been looking for because it's going to take his business to a whole new level. We'll be talking in just a minute to another whistleblower, perhaps the whistleblower of whistleblowers. Uh, her name is Cynthia Stimple, ex-South African Airways. Well, I'm, I'm wondering what... Uh, uh, what a what kind of night Cynthia Stimple must have had when she um, blew the whistle on South African Airways. Not so many good nights uh, going back there, Cynthia. Lovely to have you on the program. You're well known now as uh, the the person who stood in when it appeared as though a shelf company called BMP Capital was going to take um, 250 million rand out of South African Airways after restructuring some kind of a a, a transaction there, which was instigated by then Chairman uh, Dudumieni, but you decided to stand up, Cynthia. Just, just take us back as Group Treasurer at South African Airways. What got you to put your job on the line and, in fact, actually lose it uh, for an issue of of principle when, like many others, you could have just turned the other way? Exactly. Uh, so the initial is based on when uh, just looking at procedurally is everything correct so already up front um when the deal came to the fore when they first asked for a transaction advisor i questioned why do we need a transaction advisor when we are doing the work and uh the the then um, interim cfo said well it's it's from the board and they they want to uh, to have someone independent look at our balance sheet, look at our loan book, look at various things. And even then I was resistant to it because we were in a crisis situation for ESA. Um, subsequently, obviously, what happened is that the, uh, the BNP client was chosen as a transaction advisor. And at the time, I then relented thinking, okay, the, the, the fee is three point, um, roughly about three million, 2.6 million for the cost for them to review. And I thought sometimes it's not bad to have a second opinion, although I'd resisted quite a bit initially and then relented. But when they then said, okay, we now change the scope of the existing transaction advisor to source the funds. And then I thought, now this is no longer just an ordinary transaction uh, because we've already been working with banks. We've got a history of working with them. And why now bringing an outside party and looking at the fees they were going to pay this particular client was initially 5%. And the interim CFO proudly says to me, oh, I've negotiated it down. And I said, well, let me have a look at the fees, which she wanted me to sign the letter. And when I looked at it, realized that um, no, she had negotiated it to 3%, which made it 300 million. Extraordinary. And I said, there's extraordinary. I said, there's no way that I'm going to sign this. We are all tasked to save funds for this organization and be as prudent about our decisions on whatever we undertake. And I said, there's no way I'm going to sign this. What I will do is contact the banks and get um, and see what rates they can offer. And then we can do a full comparison. And I also said to the best way to go about this is to put a full RFP out there again, rather than 
try and get um, just uh, increase the scope of an existing transaction advisor who I haven't yet worked with and had no idea of the capacity or the capabilities to do it. Cynthia, um, it, sounds, it sounds to me like you went in, into this uh, almost believing that this was a legitimate deal, discovering that it was illegitimate, uh, as you've now explained, but then uh, not turning your head away. What did you actually do once you saw that this was clearly something that, that wasn't in the interests of uh, South African Airways or, as a result, the taxpayer? Exactly, and the best interests of this whole country. So um, at that time, being in May of when the deal was, the transaction was first brought to me to sign to to uh, source funding for BNP, I refused to sign. And I told my deputy, please don't sign. I'm going away, which I had to go away for because it was a pilgrimage. It wasn't just an ordinary holiday. Had it been, I would have cancelled it and just stayed and, and tried to challenge it in that way. By the time I left, he had signed it so that it could go through to the bid adjudication committee. When he texted me to say he signed it and it's going to be at the bid adjudication committee on the Friday, and this was now the Wednesday, I was immediately alarmed. And I then sent a whistleblowing WhatsApp message to National Treasury because at the time I'd already spoken to my senior saying, please do not do this deal. We can find another way. This is too expensive and we don't even know if they can do it. Um, the second thing is I'd also taken it to our risk department at the time, just reported it saying that's our internal chief risk officer to say, look, this is what's currently being discussed. And she said she'll note it and that was it. And then I went away. So, yes, I had to take action and I then sent a message to National Treasury while I was away. When I got back, I then took a step further. I tried to set up a meeting with the interim CFO to discuss this and say, how far have we got? We can still stop it before it gets to board and we still have time to put it out on RFP. I couldn't get a meeting. What I subsequently did then was contact the banks, and because I know the banks talk among one another, I sent only to three banks, just asking them, hypothetically, I said, if we had to go out and source funding for 15 billion rand, what would you quote SAA? And that was it. And two did come back to me with um, the the prices, and their prices were substantially lower than the price BNP was being uh, was offering SA, which I then tried to set up another meeting and couldn't. Mm. And so I then um, drew up a quick um, little spreadsheet just giving what the costs are that BNP is going to charge versus the cost that the banks are. And they gave me also a ballmark figure, what's the lower versus the highest. And I put all that in and I sent it to her saying, these are the costs we can still save substantially if we go via the banks. And um, please, can we meet and reconsider? I got no reply from those either. You know, without, without uh, um, hastening too much, you then uh, eventually lost your job. Uh, you were suspended in July 2016. That's a long time ago. Yeah. That's three years ago. So it's there, three years. What have you been doing mm. since? Have SAA asked you to come back, given that you saved them so much money? <laughs> you know, Alec, with all the research I've done to date regarding whistleblowers, 
They, they never ask you back. Those that are ruled in favor say there's been a case and the court case rules that you have been unfairly dismissed or, or suspended and that they should, the, the company should give you your job back. If they do take you back, they put you in another area and then they either rule for, um, incompetence or something, but they find something else to get you out. So yes, with me is that I subsequently got suspended after whistleblowing. SA's charges were misconduct and going to the media and various other issues rather than recognize that I've whistleblown. And that I expected because I had already read up on other cases. And so whatever I've been doing thereafter, um, the first thing I did after um, literally sort of settling with SAA, I then, which we settled for roughly six months salary and um, early retirement because I was turning 60. And so I decided to take a walk, um, a Camino, um, and walk from Portugal, Lisbon, up to Santiago in the Compostela in Spain and mainly to think because I didn't want to be carrying this burden of hatred or burden of um, I've lost my job and the stigma around it. And so when I came back, I actually wrote to the people that I felt had given me a disservice and especially the interim CFO and said to her, I forgive her, which I did. I forgave her and wrote to various others and forgave them and thought I need to start a new life and need to reinvent myself. And also decide what's my passions that I want to follow up. So one of my passions has been yoga, and that's what I followed. Mm -hmm. So I now teach yoga to adults, and I've also taken a qualification for children. And so I teach children, and this year I started teaching at various schools, and I found that very beneficial in that um, one can already start teaching ethical behavior and thinking as a, as a child, because they will push one another off the mat. They will force one another while one, uh, a child's in a pose. And so trying to teach them that's not the way to behave. And I think that's a good way of influencing. The other option I looked at was to influence at board level. So I went and did the certified directors course to the Institute of Directors. And I'm now certified director and hoping to get on a few more boards. I'm currently on two so that I can influence proper governance ethics and compliance at a board level because there they can also be swayed to do the wrong thing because it's normally the majority um, loudest person that will try and influence the rest of board members. Cynthia, what, and about, then, yeah, what about all the um, all the learnings that you've had from going through whistleblowing yourself? Have you got advice for other whistleblowers? Yes, definitely. I know one question I was asked while speaking at um, uh, Daily Maverick. They, one person had asked, would I do this again? And yes, I would. But obviously, with um, having learned from it, I'll do it a bit differently. And my advice out there to other whistleblowers is consult with as many people first um, before you do so you can get the proper help. When things happen to you, like, for instance, when I was suspended, you mentioned right as you opened about sleepless nights. I got home that night and I literally didn't sleep because and I couldn't speak to my family. I didn't know what to say. I just didn't know what to say. So for a night, I just sort of 
got into bed, got up, got into bed, got up. And because I just didn't know, and only the next morning could I speak out. So it's really hard. Um, and you need to find people to talk to. And I'm willing for any whistleblowers. I'm willing to offer that service. I've already started with a few other. We've reached out to one another. We've started a whistleblowing support group and we're looking sort of at a broader base now. A, to see how we can help them because one of the key issues whistleblowers fear is that they have, we all know the possibility of losing your job is that it's very real. The second is how do you pay your legal fees? And the third is how do you get through this from an emotional perspective to a psychological perspective, um, traumatic perspective, because it's definitely a trauma you go through. And so we're looking at broader how to work with that. And um, it's, it's, it's a journey and still work in progress. But, yes, I would encourage people to be ethical citizens of South Africa. We've come through many years of corruption that we've just seen, and this under-commission is, is um, a key proponent of that, which, uh, which we listen to every day. And if we can all start internalizing what our own personal values are and then standing up for that and speaking out, and see how, as a community, I believe that as South Africans stand up, it's it's stronger to stand up. There's a, a saying that, um, you know, when you stand up in unison, it's you, you're strong as a rock. So it's easier to stand up a, a, in unison against corruption than one individual because it's easy to just push that individual out. Uh, they become the outcast. You ignore them and you forget about them. Cynthia Stimple, the whistleblower at South African Airways. What a fascinating story. Uh, thanks for sharing it with us today on Rational Radio. David Shapiro is uh, with us on the line now, uh, talking about markets, investments, and so on. I, I want to kick off on a, a rather different um, note. I got a, a, a mail today from Woodmac, Wood Mackenzie. They are the mm-hmm. global energy. I know Wood you know Woodmac, huh? And, oh, and they're Canadian doing. Firm. I think they were based based in Canada originally. I don't know where they are now. Yeah, I think they were very well known historically. Yeah, yeah, pretty big uh, all over mm. the world. But they've done an analysis on how electric cars are going to impact the demand for metals, and cobalt, lithium, and nickel, according to their mm. perspective, are going to hit supply crunches in the mid 2020s. And it reminds me of a annual general meeting a few years ago with Glencore when uh-huh. your old friend Ivan Glasenberg uh, said that this was how they were repositioning themselves for electric cars and of course the share price of Glencore rose very sharply thereafter. Are we making, are we kind of understanding this story well enough yet? I, I don't think so. I I think that uh, great respect for Ivan. I mean, he's got a far better, far, far better foresight than I have. And obviously, he has to uh, position himself well ahead of demand. Um, but I think that, um, I think that this is a reality. It's going to happen. And the reason it's going to happen is that people want it to happen. They want electric cars. They want cars that are no longer going to mess up the atmosphere or create global warming. So, you know, for, for that reason, Tesla is so popular and we know what's happening in, in big cities. So um, who the winners are going to be, I don't think we've established that yet. 
I, you know, it's one thing that that we haven't really been able to uh, uh, to really find the winners. But you know, my gut feel is that they're going to be you know they're, they're going to be uh, money made maybe on cobalt, maybe on lithium, but also in the motor manufacturers themselves. There's a huge amount of compet- uh, competition there. Whether Tesla is going to be a winner or not. I don't know. I, you know, my bets would be on somewhere like B&W or uh, someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, remember Buffett's got a uh, build your own, build your dream, BYD. Uh, in also Hong Kong? Very, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very, very big player in those markets. But, Alec, the point being, whether we invest in it now is not the point. It's you've got to keep an eye on the developments. You know what I mean? You've got to – you can't just ignore it and then – just keep an eye on the development and uh, start making your plans now. You don't necessarily have to invest now. You don't have to be uh, a pioneer, but but uh, you can't ignore um, electric cars as a strategy. Mm. Well, that, okay, so that's one that we can go and do a little more homework on. I also had a fascinating chat yesterday on our Personal Finance Live show with Dan Brocklebank from Orbis, and he says his favorite stock is a company called NetEase which I, I must admit I've never even heard of. From, oh, that's, from that's China. aircraft. Hmm. Uh, from that's aircraft. A Chinese company. He loves it. Yes. Uh, no, no, you're thinking of... Uh, Am I? What you know, is NetEase? Of Buffett's, you think of Buffett's um, uh, oh, NetJets. Okay. NetJets, yeah. <laughs> no, no, NetEase is something else, and uh, that's a, a, a company from China, which is a, a tech company. So, again, yeah. we've got something uh, else to go and look at. We get no. all these ideas from time to time, don't we? All the time. The, the best idea that I picked up, I mean, over the weekend, and it's absolutely fascinated me. And I wanted to go back. I didn't want, when we were talking about electric cars, uh, you know, you have now Formula E mm-hmm. racing with electric cars, and it's very big in America. And what's fascinating, Alec, is that Formula E, and I might have got the story wrong, so I'm advising everybody to read the article in Barron's on 5G. But what's fascinating is that we might be moving towards live games. In other words, instead of playing it on a TV screen, you can actually uh, empower or power a driver of a, a Formula E car. If you like him and you you want to give him more power, you can actually do that over the internet over 5G. So wow. you start it. Yeah, I, I, I've got. You, you, that's what I'm amazing. saying. Don't, absolutely amazing. You've got to look. You've got to read the article that was in Barron's and try and take it a bit further. But that's what I understood, and that's fascinated me. That we're moving towards almost. You know, you don't want it to go to gladiators. You don't want to have somebody there and start throwing someone weapons that he can actually go and destroy someone else. But um, it it can work in certain areas. It might work in sporting events, uh, but but certainly in the e-car side of it. So you're starting to see different formula sports in a, a forms of sports uh, evolving. All of those which which you know which would involve data, quick transmission of data, which you'll get in 5G, and of course the internet. So um, <laughs> I, I, I think it was all started. It was started in South Africa, didn't it, with a guy called Pete Van Sale who ran onto the field in Bloemfontein and tackled the ref. So <laughs> David, there's a question. You know, you've got to look at these things. You've got to keep. You know, I, mm. I love them. I love Beyond Meat, which is you know vegan meat, 
uh, all the different kinds of themes that evolve. And I don't invest in them yet, but don't lose touch with, uh, you know, with, with what is happening. We spoke to, mm-hmm. we spoke to Farsi, Farsi Malherba a little earlier. He's mm-hmm. a South African entrepreneur who's made gazillions in a company that they, they started with 22,000 Rand in 2006 and sold it. Uh, they didn't disclose, but at a multiple, a handsome multiple, they say of $24 million. So, uh, big numbers. And his, uh, one of the things we never got around to, but uh, one of the, the, his issues is, uh, the next big thing is vegan food or veggie food. Uh, uh. There's a question here from Mark Voliter, who I know is from Peter Maritzburg, and he says, do fuel cell cars also use cobalt? Do you know about that, Dave? I I would imagine I, I I'm not a scientist I'm an accountant and uh, certainly not a metallurgist but uh, I thought fuel cells were were I, platinum I thought that, that was platinum as well I also oh. thought fuel cells were um, you know that's also faded out it was a big story a few years ago where platinum would be used but we haven't heard much of uh, around that it's still happening and it still seems that mm. cobalt and lithium seem to be the two winners. Yeah, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't write platinum off there. I remember talking, uh, talking with um, uh, Chris Griffith from uh, Anglo Platinum about about eighteen months ago, where he was just just a casual conversation where he said that the fuel cells are really working. And then I kept my eye open. Toyota are big in it. Hyundai, I think, have made uh. that bet rather than the electric car bet. Uh. So it's all interesting. But Dave, outside of those, uh, outside of electric cars and how um, the miners of cobalt and nickel and, uh, and uh, lithium are going to make lots of money. What else is attracting your attention in the market? At the moment? You know, there's a story that I can't get a grip on. And if you look at our market today, it's slightly weaker. And it's been worrying me a bit. Iron ore producers coming under a bit of pressure. Vale, uh, the Brazilian producer, back in production now. And, this, you know, after the tragedy of uh, earlier this year, the U- the you know, the uh, slime dams bursting, so they back, which means that more supply could come onto the market. Um, the mystery is, and this is the difficulty, you know, does this mean the end of the kind of run that we've had in the iron ore price? Remember, at the beginning of the year, iron ore was seventy; it's ran up to about one hundred and twenty, and I think the answer lies in Chinese steel production. But I'm watching that very, very carefully because if more production does come on. Uh, you could find iron ore prices falling back below 190, 80, which will have a big negative impact on the Kumbas, the Assors, and of course BHP Billiton, um, and Angler. So that's a story I think that one has to watch carefully. Um, mm. you get different opinion, mixed opinion. So, um, it's very difficult to, to draw conclusions. They're bulls and bears on both of that. But that's one which is behind the weakness that we're seeing um, in our market today. And it's typical of commodity markets, always difficult to read uh, the short-term movements in, in, in commodity prices. I know you like to read annual reports. NASPAS's yes. annual report came out on Friday. Have you had a chance to go through that? No, no I haven't. And, and to be honest, uh, Alec, I have to get a better grip on it. You know, I've been one of these people who've just said, oh, it's, uh, it, it's Tencent, and I love Tencent and that, but things are changing in the business, and I think now in order to play it, you know, play it mean invest in it in the future, I think we have to get a better understanding of the businesses that they are developing 
um, down the line. So um, when it comes, and it probably come in an old, you know, with the old postman, they'll drop it in our post box and um, have a look at it. Um, I always like going through that in actual form. I don't like reading it on the internet. <laughs> it's nice to actually go through the pages. It's one thing that's better to read. Uh, the actual report then, then on the internet. I'm not going to take you on on that one, Mr. Shapiro, <laughs> because it is a personal choice. But I, just to just to close off with, when I had a look at the NASPERS group of companies, yes. you've got e-commerce, e-commerce, yes. e-commerce, e-commerce, and there's a media business in South Africa that was yes. down 36% in yes. revenues yes. last year, losing yeah. money. It yeah. sticks out now like a sore thumb. Yeah. At yeah. some point in time, do you think they might sell it? They should. They should. You know, I, from my point of view, that's why they're listing. I think there's a lot of reason why they're going to Amsterdam. That's going to be the source of growth. And eventually, you're going to have uh, what's left in South Africa as really not contributing and just taking up management time. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's fine. It's, you know, it's, there's some nice businesses, but they don't make money. Uh, what I always, th- I always think of them in the old form of Heisgunert and Die Berger. <laughs> you know, forget about Fin24 and so on. But I, Alec, I'm with you in that one. I, I see no point. I know they've appointed a new CEO here to run it and that, but it's a very, very difficult business to run. So somewhere down the line, that will just, uh, you know, that will just be unbundled. Well, the good news about NASPERS is that it is uh, investing heavily in its foundry here in South Africa. So hopefully uh, it's not the end of the road if they do sell off those uh, those old media titles. Anyway, it is what it is. David Shapiro, as always, bringing us up to date on market insights. Uh, don't go anywhere. We've still got Paul Hoffman who's going to be talking to us about why he wants the public protector stripped as an advocate. Well, it's a warm welcome to Paul Hoffman, uh, who is the man behind accountability now and a long-time activist, Paul. You, your your uh, record or your history in activism uh, started some time back. Yes, no, we've, we've been going for 10 years as accountability now, but um, in 2006, when I discovered that I'd been at the bar for 26 years, which is more a year more than a life sentence, I decided to do something more useful with my life. So I've really been in the NGO sector since 2006. And right now you want to do something about Busisiwe Mekwabani, the public protector, and something quite radical. Yes, I think I think she is a loose cannon rolling around on the upper deck of this ship of state and She's going to break a couple of legs if she's allowed to keep rolling. So let, let's let's toss it overboard and get on with it as soon as possible because it's not it's not doing us or her any good at the moment. Now that Constitution Court judgment uh, that many South Africans read that came out this week is it grounds enough for you to advance your your cause that you want to throw overboard? Yes, uh, um, people who want to have their name on the role of advocates in the High Court in South Africa um, uh, cannot commit criminal offences and certainly cannot hold the court in uh, the sort of contempt that uh, Busisiwi and Kobani has done in not only in their response to the judgment but also in her uh, attempts to misrepresent the situation to lie on oath in affidavits filed before the court. 
and even to to um, display the level of gross incompetence which she has displayed in in in, uh, in, in bringing her mind to the to the tasks, the functions, and the obligations of the office of the public protector. But Paul, there was also a minority report written by the Chief Justice, Mocheng Mocheng, which only was supported by another one of the Constitutional Court uh, judges, that, that took a much more lenient view of the public yes, protector. Uh, and it's not binding, and it's uh, the, the um, acting judge, Goliath, who uh, ails from the Western Cape, and the uh, Chief Justice took a different view but it, it is simply a different view. It did not get to grips with the, the, uh, the, 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 the serious business end of the dishonesty, the uh, perjury, and the misrepresentation that has been going on. The problem with, with the new public protector is that she sought to be a new broom sweeping clean when, when she started at the end of 2016. And by January 2017, Accountability Now had already written to Parliament and said, we are trying to get answers to questions, important questions, that go to the competence and the honesty of this new public protector. And she says, report me to Parliament, I can't investigate myself. And then we say, we're not only asking you to investigate yourself, we're asking you to explain yourself. She just ignored us. So mm. we, uh, we, we put in that complaint, but, you know, that complaint didn't go anywhere because the Fifth Parliament, uh, which was a Zuma-led parliament, was was only too happy to protect the uh, public protector from proper scrutiny. And whether that attitude uh, persists in the current parliament is, is an open question. I think a lot of pessimists say that there are enough uh, Zoomerites or Zuma supporters or fight back campaigners or whatever you want to call them to, um, to, to make it impossible to get a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly, which is what re- is required in order to, to spark the procedure for a, uh, the, the president to, to, uh, Dismiss her. So you're trying a different, no, different route. Happen. If it's not going to happen mm. in Parliament, it can happen in court. Uh, through court the Legal Practice legal practice Council. Uh, just explain why, well, we, we can see why you're going that route, but what happens there? Well, they're having a meeting on Friday, which I think is commendable, and they, they will study the judgment. They will hold up the judgment to to the standards of the Constitution and the um, the uh, decision will then be made as to whether they will uh, either start disciplinary proceedings or simply apply to court for her name to be struck from the role of advocates. And uh, I can't see her uh, surviving that process because... It's very clear that that um, she she has been found technically she's been found guilty of perjury because the court uh, the, the, the judgment of the constitutional court reveals that uh, they see a dishonesty um, lack of candor in the uh, the way in which she presented her case 
and uh, deposed to affidavits from which important material was omitted and uh, um, misrepresentations were made. So if she is struck from the role, does that mean that she may no longer serve as the public protector? Yes, it's, it's, uh, the way that the Office of the Public Protector is filled is dealt with in Section 1A of the Public Protector Act. Now, I think there are five or six categories of uh, people who um, would be able to be eligible to put their names forward as a, a candidate. And she put her name forward on the basis that she is an advocate of 10 years or more standing. That That is her, um, her um, entrance to, to uh, eligibility. So if, if, if she is no longer an advocate, then she, she uh, is no longer eligible to be public protector and would have to, uh, to give way to a successor. Paul Hoffman from Accountability Now bringing us uh, well, some insights there that on Friday the Legal Practice Council, on his instigation, is going to deliberate on whether the public protector should be stripped of her right of being uh, an advocate, and if that were duly to happen, uh, then, as he mentioned, she could no longer be the public protector. Uh, the charges are dishonesty, perjury, incompetence, all of which are contained in the majority judgment from the Constitutional Court, which ruled 8-2 to two, uh, in favor of making her pay the fees or the legal fees that were incurred by the South African Reserve Bank in the most recent case.